Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap events and issues pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WMBD Radio News Director Will Stevenson. First, artificial intelligence. It's a term that strikes optimism for some about what the future holds, but maybe does just the opposite for others. For students at Illinois Central College's Health Careers Program, it provides a whole new opportunity for learning, with perhaps the most realistic situations possible with patients, even if those patients aren't exactly human. ICC is the first community college in Illinois to employ a new lifelike patient simulator thanks to AI technology. I talked about the unit named HAL with Greg Love, Coordinator of Simulation and Skills Labs for ICC's Health Careers Program. Greg, I've, I've gotten a look here. I haven't, at the time we're talking, I haven't really seen all that this can do, but this is a pretty fascinating thing you have for, for students uh, studying the, uh, the health programs here at ICC. Yes, it is. This is the newest HAL. He is um, a human patient simulator and the first human patient simulator with artificial intelligence. So he will form the answers to students' questions based on information that is entered into the program and then sometimes comes up with his own answers. For example, we did not have anything programmed into him as to what a favorite activity might be, and he was asked that question during the training. He responded, tennis. So apparently, Hal likes to play tennis. Well, there you go. Uh, before I ask a little bit more about that, how did you how did you end up with this? How did that come about? We received a grant for uh, workforce um, development, and that is paying for Hal. He is being used in our LPN program and in our ADN program. He'll be used by all the health career programs here, but those two primarily. The key is for those programs, the ability for the students to learn how to interview the patient, ask questions of the patient, remember the responses, follow up on questions, those types of things, and get them comfortable talking to the patient. So it's really more, it's really student-based in that it helps, as you said, helps them get more comfortable while, well, I don't want to say Hal knows everything, but uh, Hal might know a lot of stuff here. Exactly. And the the interesting part about it, about it is that sometimes his responses to questions will catch you a little off guard because he'll go into detail. He is programmed to tell you what his pain level is based on, a 1 to 10 scale, so we in the program have entered 8. He will tell you that his pain level is an 8 on a 1 to 10 scale, with 1 being moderate, or mild pain and 10 being the worst pain he can imagine. And some of that comes from his self-generated information that he has developed. My headache is an 8 on a scale of 1 to 10, where 1 is mild pain and 10 is the most severe pain. I don't have any other pain in my body. The students can practice here asking questions and performing skills. And if they say something, frame it in the wrong manner, or if they um, were to make a mistake, it not nobody gets hurt. Okay. 
the the Hal's feelings might be a little rough for a while, but he'll get over it. No patient has been harmed, and the student isn't harmed. So through the use of, I guess, sort of AI technology, you're basically otherwise able to really demonstrate any sort of a, perhaps a, any sort of health emergency type situation. Is that what I'm gathering? Yes. Hal will, he can demonstrate a patient with a gunshot wound. Hal can be put on a ventilator and, and will do most of the, simulate most of the conditions that, that the students would find when they're using a ventilator. So our respiratory therapy students are going to have a great time with them. He has arterial lines and um, central lines. He can be, they can mimic just about anything they need to, to practice. What's the most common situation that's used right now? It probably depends by the class, doesn't it? It does. Um, one of the things that the human patient simulators have been a drawback with them is the actual assessment interview because they don't respond and they don't have it it does not have the conversational feeling that you get when you deal with a live person however so a lot of programs will use simulated patients which are actors people coming in and pretending to be a patient and that works great for that interview process but when you want to stick needles into those simulated patients, there's a little hesitancy there, and you tend not to get a lot of volunteers. This combines both of those so that we can have that conversational experience and the students can practice their skills. I'm terrified of needles, so I, I would I would not be volunteering to come in and have that done. But uh, um, in terms of... Uh, there's obviously been a lot of talk lately about AI and its various good and potential bad uses and 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 things like that. This sounds on the surface like it's a a pretty good use and not the type of use that for for example could someday put me out of a job. <laughs> this the, the this it, it's it, it sounds like this is as real as you can get without being 100% real. That, yes, and it the Artificial intelligence that HAL is using is not going to take over the world. Um, he is not going to go running down the street or chasing anybody. Uh, so we don't have to worry really about his artificial intelligence going awire. And, but that said, though, that, that knowledge, I imagine, as, as you deal with more simula simulations and things will really kind of grow out of time, I imagine, or is it something that he knows a lot already? Well, a little bit of both. We're, we're gonna be, we're gonna be learning just how that works and his, his artificial intelligence program is cloud-based. So, so it's kind of taking in information all the time then I imagine. It is. And it, and all of the different HALs that are out there, I believe contribute to the same knowledge base. How much is this in use in, not here because we've talked about that, but in, in other settings? Are a lot of schools going this route or is this still pretty, a pretty new thing? It's, it's a new thing. There are, um, Four in Illinois, 
and I believe ours is the first that has been delivered to a community college in Illinois. But um, there are others. He has, they have been delivering uh, this particular HAL about a year now, I believe. And so he is relatively, he is very new. But it's growing. Yes, it is growing. And there are many orders for HAL. It took us seven, eight months to get delivery of our HAL. So they are each built as they're ordered, and he's not an off-the-shelf item. You said at least here in Illinois you're the first community college that has, uh, that has taken receipt of a HAL. Uh, what does that mean? Well, the, um, so there are a couple medical programs up in the Chicago area, uh, medical schools that have uh, HALs. But we're the first uh, program uh, in the community college level with, uh, like, nursing classes, et cetera, that is uh, using HAL at this point. How do you see having to, I imagine you have already, but do you see having to alter curriculum or add or subtract classes or things like that because because of this new simulator that you have? Not really. Our simulation program, as is the case with most of the um, healthcare professions, simulation has been growing for the last 10 years. Um, if you really look back at it, closer to 30. When I took my first ACLS class, we had a mannequin that lay there, and I could just simulate the cardiac rhythms, and everything else was... Um, make-believe but um, from that we've grown to Hal who can simulate he he breathes he has pulses he we can shock him with electrical therapy we can simulate many different cardiac conditions start IVs on him he can take a Foley catheter the whole bit can probably uh, take the shock better than I could Oh yes, yes, yes. He he complains less about it. Sure. But we'll see we'll see how that goes with the artificial intelligence. I was gonna say we'll get him to the complaining level at some point, won't we? We will. We will. Is there a scenario this is maybe sort of a maybe an odd question, I don't know. Is there a scenario that Hal hasn't been in yet that you that you see putting him into at some point or or or, or have you, I don't want to say have you thought of everything, but have you thought of everything at this point? Um, we're always thinking of new scenarios for Hal, and our faculty will be coming up with some very interesting situations for Hal to experience and for the students to experience with Hal, I'm sure. Hope you feel better, Hal. Thank you, Doctor. I got a promotion. <laughs> I got a promotion. <laughs> Take that, news people. I'm now a doctor. <laughs> Greg Love, coordinator of simulation and skills labs for the Illinois Central College Health Careers Programs and special guest appearances by Hal. I kind of like that he called me a doctor. More Week in Review coming up. The candidates for office to be decided in next year's elections that are at least not looking to become president are starting to line up. 
Among them is a seat in the Illinois Senate that represents parts of the Tri-County area and well beyond thanks to redistricting. This past week, the current mayor of Washington, Gary Manier, announced he's running for the 53rd District Illinois Senate seat currently held by Republican Tom Bennett of Gibson City. Bennett, after being appointed to the seat when Jason Barrickman decided to step down, has announced his intention to retire. I talked to Gary Manier about his run and a potential primary battle a few days ago. I uh, had a few people reach out to me from the 53rd District uh, to see if I would have any interest. And uh, I, I had thought about it uh, over the years and, and didn't think much about it. And then when uh, Senator Berrickman uh, left office early and I interviewed with the 13-county uh, Republican chairman for the open seat and Dr. Tom Bennett, uh, who is now the, the senator, was the state rep at the time, and uh, he, he re- was put into that position. He chose to retire. So uh, a few people reached out and said, you need to, maybe this is your time to take a shot. Yeah, we had heard, I think, if I remember right, uh, way back toward the end of last year, I think when all this change started to happen, that uh, you were one of the names that were uh, that was thrown out there. What ultimately made you uh, want to uh, go for the seat? Well, I, I, think, I think, one, it's what we learned you know, in, in my 20, 23 plus years now from serving the city of Washington, I think just the uh, amount of funds that uh, no longer comes toward the city in 2011, the LDGF funds were taken away. Uh, I actually went from 10% to 6%. And uh, I'm currently serving uh, as one of the vice presidents of the Illinois Municipal League. And we fight for that to try to get legislators to get that back up to uh, 10% and get our fair share back. So just a matter of underfunding and all the unfunded mandates that uh, cities receive kind of sparked my interest to see if we can get things changed. Is uh, that sort of uh, that that changing of funds or reduction in funds is that uh, is that one of the the bigger concerns that you see that you can uh, try and and help change if you're elected? Well, well, I think pension liability. I think we you know the legislators have worked some on that, but uh, there's still a ways to go. And you know, especially uh, we only have police pension, but communities that have uh, fire and police pensions, uh, it's uh, pretty much a burden on the taxpayers. In your time as mayor, Gary, what's been the most frustrating thing you've had to deal with Springfield on? I, I imagine there could probably be a laundry list of them, right? Well, I, I think I think uh, getting roads fixed. Uh, right now, we have a $53 million project for Business 24 that uh, IDOT has plugged funding in in the 2019 capital bill. Uh, and we're just now starting to see some engineering on that road, and they're, uh, they push that project out to 28 or 29 now. So uh, frustrating that, uh, you know, unfortunately, they just don't have enough manpower to, to handle things uh, in Springfield. Uh, infrastructure seems to be the big, the uh, one of the bigger concerns, obviously. So what do you, uh, what other concerns do you see in that regard? I think that's the thing that people, regardless of what part of the area you talk to, end up being concerned about the most is uh, at least the state of roads and bridges and that sort of thing. Sure, and I think I think part of that is is what what we're hearing from IDOT is uh, a lot of employees have left, and unfortunately the you know state only pays a certain amount of money, and these private uh, companies come in and they get a couple years experience and they pick these young kids up and and pay them a lot more money. So uh, I'm not saying we need to spend more money, but on that uh, that part of it, maybe that's something we need to look at. Where do you see in general state finances right now? I think the governor tries to make things sound a little. I, I they sound good. Maybe they're not as good as they they could be, but certainly uh, 
seems like they're not as bad as they they have been in in previous administrations. No, you know he he keeps touting a balanced budget, and obviously that was passed and uh, accepted. So uh, it'd be interesting to to get in deeper to see exactly uh, how sideways it may be. Have you talked to Senator Bennett at all? What is what has he told you about I have. this? I, matter of fact, Senator Bennett uh, kind of uh, encouraged me to take a look at it. Uh, I've met with him probably four or five times since he's. Uh, was was seated in the 53rd district and uh, uh, attended several events with him. So uh, he actually sent me some of the election information to, to wish me luck. Is he giving you any advice? Oh no, <laughs> he's uh, obviously a constant politician when it comes to to that. So obviously, I'm sure there's other people running. So I'm sure he'll stay uh, neutral until the primary is over. And has uh, former Senator Barrickman contacted you at all? I have not heard from uh, Senator Barrickman. I have talked to Dan Rutherford, who used to be uh, our state rep, our state senator, and our state treasurer. Uh, he and I are good friends, so he was actually uh, one of my senators in the 53rd district at one time. And uh, was he uh, sounds like he was pretty supportive. Well, I, I don't know if it's being supportive, but uh, he was uh, willing to have me take a shot. So we had a great conversation. Um, are, any concerns about? Uh what would happen if you're elected? Would you have to uh, step down as mayor? And would that be uh, would that be a bit of a concern uh, for you going forward? Sure. And I think that's something I'd have to look at. Obviously, I wouldn't be able to, uh, it, you wouldn't be seated until January of 2025, and my term would end uh, April 30th of uh, 2025. Ah, okay. So you, I guess I'm, what I'm asking is, do you feel like in some respects you, you might be, or, or maybe you wouldn't be letting down now the residents of Washington if you go for a slightly higher office here? Well, I, I, I think that helping municipalities at the legislative level in Springfield, I think uh, I could be a benefit not only just to Washington, but the entire 53rd district, uh, knowing what municipalities have to deal with and where funding comes from. You're not the only candidate, at least at this point. I think the chair of the Grundy County Board uh, up north um, <laughs> is uh, is looking at running too. Uh, how do you how do you see matching up against him? Well, I just think I, I would go on my record and you know what I've hopefully accomplished here in Washington. We're continuing to grow and uh, our finances are are very strong and have uh, plenty of reserve. And we're proud of uh, how we've served in here in the city of Washington. That, that that's maybe, in, I think part of the other issue, at least for me, is that uh, Grundy County is literally one end of the district, and and Washington and Tazewell County are another part. Um, right. How is that is that gerrymandering? I guess kind of concerning to you at all? Uh, any kind of gerrymandering is concerning, but uh, it's just something you deal with, and uh, you pick up the pieces, and you do what you have to do, and you have to go go forward. And if you can help in a little way. Uh, the entire uh, region. That's that's what you have to do. All right. Um, I can't think of anything else I would ask you off the top of my head, Gary. Is there anything you want to mention uh, that I didn't touch on here? No, I, I appreciate you reaching out to me and always, uh, always great talking to you. Washington Mayor Gary Manier running for the 53rd District Illinois Senate seat. Our attempts to contact the other candidate, Grundy County Board Chairman Chris Balkema, have so far been unsuccessful. More Week in Review coming up. 
One of the congressmen representing the Peoria area, 17th District Democrat Eric Sorensen, has released a series of proposals that he says will work to save consumers money and, among other things, help the agriculture industry. Sorensen talked about the proposal with reporters via Zoom a few days ago. We all have to have an understanding that inflation and rising costs are, are really affecting every family and every neighbor in central and northwestern Illinois. Um, and an understanding here, there's a real cost to what's going on. Um, a couple of points that I really wanna make clear here today. Um, and there are three points, the three most important points that we can do here in this office today that are going to bring solutions to the challenges back home. Number one, pass a farm bill. I'm so proud to be in the Agriculture Committee um, here in Congress when we do have that five-year farm bill. Uh, we need to make sure that we are producing more food and more energy right here in middle America. Um, and in the end, that's going to lower the prices for everyone. And that it also empowers agriculture, which is one of the biggest economic drivers in our district. Number two, we have to crack down on big pharma's delay tactics um, to lowering drug costs. I hear from too many people in our districts. And it doesn't matter uh, whether this is Rockford, Peoria, Bloomington, or the Quad Cities. Um, we've got too many people today that have outrageous bills when they go and pick up their prescriptions at the, at the drug counter. Um, and we need to understand that this is happening on the backs of people uh, who are struggling to make ends meet, including our seniors. And so that's why I introduced the Stop Games Act, which is going to bring immediate relief to drug prices right back to the consumer um, so that people don't have to choose whether or not they're going to pay for their electric bill or pay for their prescription drugs. Um, and then finally, number three, uh, we are working diligently to bring permitting reform uh, to our energy transmission grid. We have to understand that the energy transmission grid of today was designed about 100 years ago. We need to reinvest in our electric grid. Not only is this going to mean less power outages when we have extreme weather, but also it means that we're going to be able to get the power from where we have a surplus to, to where we need it, um, including in times of disaster. Also means that we're going to be a driver of energy right here at home uh, as we are focused on not just the transmission of power, but the for the real fact that 57% of the power that is produced in Illinois comes from nuclear power. Um, and I would like to see um, small scale nuclear um, added to some of the, um, the solutions um, as we go forward, because we know that that is reliable, safe power here in the state of Illinois. So how do we get there? Um, first things first, um, we've got to grow and modernize our workforce. Uh, we've got to make sure that we support manufacturing right here in our district. We're, we're focused on reducing energy costs because we hear about those high energy bills. So it's the job of Congress to actually get something done. Um, I'm also focused on uh, increasing the availability of affordable housing. Um, as some of our communities in our district uh, see housing problems, the prices go up. And as those prices go up, fewer and fewer people are connected uh, to the solution. And uh, we need to make sure that uh, home ownership is a part of that as well. And then we have to strengthen America's competitiveness in a global economy. Uh, because what we do right here in Illinois 17 um, is part of a great economic driver of our country. 
Um, and so we need to fast track the export of the things that we produce right here in this district to those world markets, because then that brings um, the, the profits, the stability, the sustainability of jobs right back here at home. Uh, so with that, I'd love to open it up to any questions that you might have, um, whether it is about uh, these things. I'd, I'd like to focus on uh, some of these things because right here in front of me, I mean, this this is the plan that we have today to get these to get these results right back to not only the American people, but to the people in our district. Um, we've got the plan to do it. Uh, we just need to uh, fulfill that plan. And for us to fulfill that plan, we have to keep the government open and then keep government working for people. Just listening to that, kind of the broad strokes goals you're talking about, lowering prescription drug prices, uh, energy costs, things like that. I think there's probably broad agreement among many that those are issues that need to be addressed. Okay. But but as they say, the devil's in the details, right? And, uh, you know, your, your colleagues against the uh, across the aisle, um, I mean, how do you how do you get them on board about some with some of these things? Rather, um, how do you how do you reach across there and get consensus on a method to achieve these goals? Well, we have to understand there is this partisan divide in Congress today, um, and understanding that we have that—that's um, the elephant in the room. Uh, what I want to be able to do is go around the elephant and find the people that are sitting here in the corners, find the people in the back that wanna get the job done. I am an optimist here. I believe that 85% of those elected in Congress are actually here to do the people's work. So it is up to me to find those people on the other side of the aisle and have them understand that I don't wanna play partisan politics. I just wanna solve these problems. And, and the, the real truth here is when we look at the farm bill, for instance, um, the agriculture committee, um, it's a great bipartisan uh, body. And we have to understand that a farm bill is essential, not just for our farm families, but for those that are needing assistance in food, right? These are bipartisan issues. Right. But we've got to make sure that when we talk about the farm bill, that we don't have just a few on the very far fringe that take control of everything and just derail the train. Um, and so that's why it is important to have consensus on the farm bill. Also, looking at what Big Pharma is doing, uh, we have consensus, uh, Republicans and Democrats, to actually be able to solve these problems. Um, and then thirdly, when we talk about um, permitting reform um, to invest in the electric grid, um, we've got bipartisanship there too. And so we really have to strive and look at who are the people that are, that are working diligently to get the job done versus the people in Congress today, uh, the chaos caucus that just wants to shut everything down and then light the match. Hi, yeah, just to, just to follow up on that then. Sure, um, yeah. You talked a little bit about um, some of the bipartisan consensus on some of these things like drug prices, for instance. But again, when we talk about the actual methods of getting to some of these goals, we might agree on the problems, but there's there's a lot of divergent views on the, the solutions, basically, right? Especially partisan uh, divides between what the right solution is. So... How do you get people to, to find a common solution to some of these things they agree are problems? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, look, at, for instance, you know, in 
first and foremost, we've got to get a budget through. All right, so I'm also looking at the farm bill. Um, it is understanding that we are working across the partisan divide. Um, there are so many meetings that are happening in committee today. Um, these aren't just Republican committees and Democratic committees. I mean, we're meeting together um, to solve these problems. And, and not everything is a meet in the middle. Um, we, have a, we have a give and take um, that happens as well. Um, you know, I don't want people to lose sight of the fact that that Congress is working hard. Um, but we just have to understand that for us to be able to get this farm bill through, um, it has to be clean. Um, we cannot allow the extremists here in Congress to put in the poison into bills that we have already agreed on, right? So the farm bill, um, we're working diligently on that. Um, I'm also a proud member of the, the New Democrat Coalition. Um, and, and we're the ones that work across the partisan divide. Um, and I wholeheartedly believe in that because this is the type of district. I live in the type of neighborhood where we have Republicans and Democrats. Yet we, we find a way to get along. We find a way to live with one another. And, and at my heart, I believe we have to get back to that place, that place of reasonableness, um, because that's how we're going to get things done. Um, very rarely. Do people, the angriest people, come up with the greatest solutions? Um, I know, for instance, I don't make great decisions uh, when I'm angry, but I make great decisions when I have stakeholders sitting around the table uh, that are helping us understand one another. Um, and so that's really what this plan is going to do. Um, it works across the partisan divide to get things done um, as we're able to bring ideas to the table and then solve the, the problems um, that bring solutions, that support job growth, um, that support the middle class. Uh, those are things that we need to get done. And, um, and also, you know, when, when we put something together, uh, when it has my signature, and then it also has a Republican signature, um, because these are the best ways that we're able to put legislation forward. Credit card fees are eating small businesses alive. That's according to Senator Dick Durbin and other Democrat and Republican lawmakers on Capitol Hill who have introduced a measure into Congress called the Credit Card Competition Act, which Durbin says will give businesses and consumers choice when it comes to those pesky fees every business that has a credit card terminal are charged. It's great here to be here today with this group of small business owners and my colleagues, Senator Marshall and Senator Welsh. Let me state some facts that I think are not controverted. Visa and MasterCard control around 80% of the credit card market in the United States. At a time when consumers are concerned about many things, but essentially focused on the issue of inflation, the Visa MasterCard duopoly is making it worse for American families. Each time a credit or debit card is used, Visa and MasterCard charge what's called an interchange or a swipe fee. Some of that they keep for themselves. Most of it they give to the bank that issued the card. Visa and MasterCard set the fees on behalf of thousands of banks and tell the merchants, take it or leave it. There is no negotiation. There is no competition. Merchants have no choice but to accept the outrageous fees or else. In 2022 alone, 
U.S. merchants and consumers paid $93.2 billion in credit card interchange fees to line the pockets of the biggest Wall Street banks. Guess what? They're planning another interchange fee increase in October, which would increase the fees for small businesses by more than $500, billion, $500 million. Interchange fees, now this is a something, I hope you'll take this fact home. Interchange fees are the second largest cost for many small businesses, only behind labor cost. The amount these businesses pay in credit card fees can be the equivalent of hiring two or three more employees. Enough is enough. Senator Marshall and I introduced the Credit Card Competition Act, which would introduce competition and choice to the credit card market and bring down excessive credit card fees. It would require only the largest 30 or so banks in the country to enable at least two credit card networks to be used on their credit cards. In other words, an issue um, that we all recognize as competition. At least one of those networks has to be a company outside the Visa MasterCard duopoly. This competition and choice between networks will bring down fees. The Credit Card Competition Act is estimated to save merchants and consumers $15 billion each year. Visa, MasterCard, and their big bank buddies have committed to, quote, spend whatever is needed, close quote, to defeat our Credit Card Competition Act. They've also taken to spreading misinformation to try to get their way. I stood up to these banks in 2010. I'm not afraid of them any longer, and no one should be. I look forward to working with all of you to get the Credit Card Competition Act across the finish line. My ally in the battle this year is from the other party, so this is a bipartisan effort, but a Midwesterner from the state of Kansas. He has shown a determination and a fierceness, which I value very much, and I'd like to introduce my colleague, Senator Roger Marshall. What I wish is just one time that this body behind us, this Senate, would pick Main Street over Wall Street. Just one time, one time we need to stand up for Main Street and fight back on these Wall Street banks and this duopoly of Visa and MasterCard, which are charging our, our constituents, the folks in Kansas, the folks in Illinois, the folks in Vermont, seven times what they're charging people in the European Union. These big banks, this duopoly, have increased their fees. They've netted from going from $10 billion a year to over $90 billion a year since 2010. In 13 short years, they more than tripled the, 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 the amount of bills that they're sending these folks. When you're a retailer, you don't get to choose. Visa or MasterCard control over 80% of their customers. So when you have that much dominating that one industry, they don't have a choice. Visa MasterCard are not transparent. These folks behind me have no idea from purchase to purchase how much these uh, big companies are clawing back out of their hard income. And what they're going to share with you is that certainly labor is their largest cost. But after that cost, that these swipe fees are more than they're paying for utilities, more than they're paying for rent, more than they're paying for health care. Retail companies across Main Street, across America, have a profit margin usually around 1% or 1.5%. These swipe fees are inflation multipliers. I think it makes perfect sense if you're paying 3% for $2 a gallon gas versus 3% tax on a $5 a gallon of gas, that that's an inflation multiplier. 
everywhere across the state of Kansas, what I hear folks concerned about, whether you're a young family starting off with two kids at home or you're a senior citizen living social security check to social security check, their biggest challenge is just paying for groceries, paying for gasoline. And what these Visa credit card bills, these swipe bills do are an inflation multiplier to an already tough situation. And then just to cap it off, the average interest rate that folks are paying is 25% on these same cards. Anyone that votes against the Marshall-Durbin Amendment is voting for Wall Street. They're picking Wall Street over Main Street. I'm here today to support Main Street America. My name is Jared Sheeler, and I own the Hub Convenience Stores in North Dakota. We have five locations. My family and I have done a lot of work to build our small business and keep it going. We've got 95 team members who are also like family to us. They depend on us. Business isn't easy. In most places, there is another store across the street or down the block competing with us and trying to win over the same customers that we depend on. But of all the challenges I face running a small business, credit card fees are one of the most difficult and unfair. We pay far higher rates on those fees than our large competitors. The credit card companies design their pricing in that unfair way. And those fees are my second highest operating cost. What we pay our team members is first, but card fees are more than my rent or utilities. And frankly, it's not even close. Credit card fees cost me more than $600,000 last year alone. That's a huge hit, and it's more than 160000 more than the previous year. As retailers, we shave every penny we can off our prices to get consumers in the door. That's how it works when you have a competitor nipping at your heels. But the credit card companies and the giant banks that issue credit cards don't compete. If we want small businesses like mine to be able to make things work, we need Congress to make, just make sure the credit card industry has basic rules of the road, just like every other business. Until Congress acts, small businesses like mine will continue to get squeezed by the credit card industry. We need the Credit Card Competition Act. Senator Dick Durbin and other lawmakers in Washington earlier this week. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. Join us at this time next week on this Midwest Communications Station for another recap of some of the biggest issues and events in central Illinois. I'm Will Stevenson, WMBD Radio News.